You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter. We're calling Road Trip. With this week's message, here's pastor to middle adults, Joe Cook. I'm going to start this morning with a question. It may not be as convicting for you as it is for me. We'll see how it lands. Here's the question. What would you, or what would someone think if you, or if I, were the only follower of Jesus that they ever got to meet, hear, or observe? Convicts me a little bit as I think about my, my track record following Jesus. I came to faith at an early age, as about eight years old, and I think back to some of my early elementary escapades, or whatever you might want to call them. I remember once being called into the office. I was found guilty of selling fool's gold to the children of some migrant farm workers that couldn't speak English. Wasn't a real stellar example of a follower of Jesus to visitors to our country, was it? And while we can kind of snicker at that a little bit, and that's okay, I didn't think it was very funny at the time, but we can. A few years later, more seriously as a teenager, I can remember sharing my faith in Christ with a friend And I told him he had to stop a certain behavior if he was going to follow Jesus. That was bad enough in putting a hurdle between him and and the simple gospel of faith. But the bigger problem was even what I told him he had to stop wasn't even a sin. It was simply frowned upon by my particular denomination. My friend didn't come to faith in Christ that day. What What if I was the only person he ever knew? that followed Jesus. Now, I've left out a whole lot of other stories. We haven't even made it into college or young adulthood, and uh, I'm not going to go there. Let's just say there have been some times in my life where if I was the only person that someone knew about following Jesus, they would struggle. And you know what? I've been on the other side of that too, because our examples, our conduct as we follow Christ It doesn't just impact those who don't know Christ, it impacts those who do know Christ. As I think about growing up, some of the examples that I had of Christ followers were not the most stellar either, and it caused me to struggle. I even had a period of time in my young adult life where I didn't want anything to do with church. I still still had faith in Jesus, but the church was a hard place to be, and Christians at that time weren't my favorite people. There's a quote that I heard probably early on. You've probably heard it too. It's attributed to Gandhi, the Indian civil rights activist. He writes, he said this, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The problem with that statement is it's often true. It's been true of me and it's been true of others who I was following and it's caused me problem. How many of us who follow Christ don't with heartache cringe at another news story about a Christian leader who has fallen or who has abused someone. We just, we hear that and we just wish it shouldn't be. That's not who Jesus is. Peter is walking us through what it's like to be aliens in a foreign world. This is not our home. And last week we learned we're here on a mission. Our conduct really does matter. And we're going to talk about our conduct this morning And we're going to talk about what we can do. We're going to talk about the word how. How do we work 
on our conduct. Now, this idea of us being on a mission isn't original with Peter. Peter got it from, from Jesus. In the Gospel of John, there's this 17th chapter where Jesus prays, and he prays for you, and he prays for me. He prays for all those who will come to faith in Jesus. And in that chapter, in verse 18, he says this, As you sent me into the world, he's speaking to the Father, so I've sent them into the world. Jesus is saying that we're here to continue what he started, to continue spreading the word. Here's how the Apostle Paul captured that idea. In 2 Corinthians 5, he would read this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. You know, when you're an ambassador to, the, to a, another country, your behavior in that country reflects on the place you're from. So we have this thing that we're wrestling with today. We're here representing Jesus, and, and let's be honest, I'm probably not the only one that blows it from time to time. So how, how can we work on our conduct? Peter's going to help us. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're just going to start with the first verse. The way we're going to break up these 12 verses today is there's going to be a three, kind of a three-point outline. We're going to talk about growing in the world. That's our first section. We're going to talk about building. We're here to build something. And then we're going to talk about blessing the world. So let's begin in these first few verses and look at growing. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Now, period, stop. That's quite the list, and Peter, I mean, yeah, Peter just says, put it away. Now, that word, put it away, it's the idea of undressing, like you'd lay aside a garment. We actually encountered this phrase in Paul exactly one year ago today. As I was going through this, I remembered going through this in, in uh, Paul in Ephesians, and one year ago, on October the 25th, on a Sunday, we were in Ephesians 4.22, where we were talking about this very same thing. Paul said, lay aside the flesh. There's some things that people see, like garments, and we don't, it's not the, that's not the way we want to be ambassadors. Look at that list. Malice. Malice is a feeling of hostility with the intent to do harm to someone else. Uh, it's, it's not a nice thing. It's something that you can kind of, it's an aroma that you can sense on someone. And then the next word, deceit, it's a Greek word for fishing bait. You deceive someone, like tell them fool's gold is worth something, right? It's something when you intentionally deceive someone. Then envy, it's ill will towards someone who has something that you think you would like to have, or they have an advantage that you think you need, like jealousy, I don't, why do they get that? And then the next one, hypocrisy, a false persona. It's a theatric word. It's this idea of wearing a mask, like Halloween mask. It's one face here, but behind it's something else. And then the last one is slander, to speak evil of someone else. Peter's saying to believers, by the way, put these things away. Now, you wouldn't be telling a group of followers of Jesus to put these things away if some of them didn't occasionally have some of them. So what we see in this list is something that Peter says, that's not good. That doesn't represent our Savior well. The common thread in this, <clears throat> the common thread in this is that they're horizontal. They're related to how we connect with other people, but they point to something bigger. 
they point to a vertical problem. This is what John, the Apostle John said in his first epistle. In 1 John 1.20 we read, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. This is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. So when we wear those garments of malice, envy, slander, and deceit, we, we are not loving our brother. And if we're not loving our brother, that indicates there's a problem with our relationship with God. So it's very serious. It's much more than how we relate to other people. So how do we deal with this? Peter said, put it off. So we're just going to grab our bootstraps, grit our teeth, and get it done? Try harder? Act like a Christian. That's, is that our message? That's not the gospel message. That's a gospel message that some, some places may, may teach. It's a gospel of sin management. Maybe you've heard us use that term before. We picked that language up from Dallas Willard, and here's a quote that we've shared. It'd be a good one to kind of keep in your mind. We read this. If gospels of sin management are preached then they are what Christians will believe. Now, just stop there. Each week as followers of Jesus, oftentimes you're in here and you hear the gospel again. If we're teaching sin management, if that's what you believe, then that's what you're going to try to do, try to just get it done in your own strength. He continues, and those in the wider world, those outside the church, outside where the followers of Jesus meet, they're going to reject those gospels. And they will believe that what they have rejected is the gospel of Jesus Christ himself when, in fact, they haven't heard it yet. The gospel that we read in the Scripture is not a gospel of sin management. The gospel of sin management will accomplish two things. It will either make a person prideful, you're going to be proud of, look how good I am, or it's going to lead you to despair. Part of my problem in those early days of my life with the church is I felt like I had to get it right all the time. And I felt like the people were saying that they got it right all the time, and I knew they didn't. You see, hypocrisy, most people don't like hypocrisy. Even hypocrites <laughs> don't like hypocrisy. We struggle with that, and so we, we pull back. But Peter's not teaching a gospel of sin management. He has another way, another idea of how, and that's where we're going to go in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So in verses 2 and 3, Peter takes us somewhere. And if you mark in your Bibles, I'm going I'm to invite you to mark the two words, long for. In these, three, in these three verses, this is the imperative. This is the command, long for. That idea to long for the pure spiritual milk, it's addressing the word. Some of your translations will even have the pure spiritual milk of the word. It's in some of the manuscripts, and it's in the context. I want you to look at how this whole section in chapter 2 begins. It begins with the word so or therefore. That means it connects us to what came before. So look back in chapter 1 and look at verse 23 with me. I need to lay a little foundation here as we move forward. In verse 23, we read, since you have been born again, he's addressing these people and he's saying, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's our context. That's what, that's what Peter's building on. He's saying, you are born again. This message isn't to 
bring about new birth. This is about to bring about growth. That's what he's talking about in here in these first verses. And he says to long for the pure spiritual milk, referring to the word of God. So what do we mean by long for? Constable writes this, long for is a strong expression that we could paraphrase, develop an appetite for. God's word is spiritual food that all believers instinctively desire, but we must also cultivate a taste for it. See, when you become a believer in Christ, you're born again. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. You're a new creation, which means a whole group of new desires come to be with inside of you. But they're not always the strongest desires. Sometimes the fleshy, fleshy desires are the strongest ones. And he's telling us we need to develop our appetite. Well, how do you do that? How do you develop an appetite for something? If you're a foodie and you watch the Food Network or you watch some of the shows that are on TV, you might be familiar with the name Andrew Zimmerman. Andrew Zimmerman has the show called Bizarre Foods. And if you've ever watched it, there is some, this guy eats some really weird stuff. He travels all around the world and he tries food that some cultures consider a delicacy. But you and I wouldn't even allow them into our home. I'm going to list three of them because these are the only three that I could find that were actually I was willing to share in public before you go to lunch. At one occasion, we see that he has eaten bamboo rats. They were barbecued. I saw a picture of them. I still don't want them. I love barbecue. The other thing he had, he had eaten was dung beetles, and I didn't even look to see how they were prepared. That wasn't a recipe I was interested in. And then one of them was a fermented sheep's head. Fermented basically means rotten, by the way. He, <laughs> he's eaten these things. And so in this interview, in this article that we were reading, the, the article was kind of learning about Andrew Zimmerman's life and what was going on. And in the story, he's talking about feeding his three-year-old an earthworm and talking to him about how you just got to develop a taste for it. So, I mean, how would you like to be in that family business? trying to bring him along in there. But in the interview, he said, how do you develop a taste for these things? And here's what Zimmerman said, and it's something that your grandmother or your mother may have shared with you. He just said, you just need to try it and try it multiple times. And he quoted a study where uh, experts gave children eight or nine, a vegetable eight or nine times, and eventually they started to kind of, okay, tolerate it, then like it. And you know, I've lived that experience. When I was a kid, I wouldn't eat anything green. I hated all vegetables. Green things were like kryptonite to me. I didn't want them anywhere near me. But you know what? Now I love all kinds of vegetables. I love asparagus. I love cabbage. I love spinach. I even like Brussels sprouts if there's a little bacon cooked in there with them. <laughs> but I love vegetables. And, but I had to try them for a while. And Peter's talking about nourishment. He's, he's using metaphors to paint a picture. And that word long for that I asked you to highlight, it's critical He's saying, stir up these desires. And then in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's not questioning it. The if there is in a certain grammatical voice that means it's considered, it's assumed. If, it's more like since, since you have tasted. This is an allusion to Psalm 34 probably where we read, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The idea is to continually taste it. Can you come and, and put that in, to drink it in? What Peter's alluding to here is the abiding principle that we talk about a lot here. 
and we'll continue to talk about it because it is a cornerstone principle for all of our growth in Christ. And if you don't know this verse, you, you, should, have, um, you should have heard us use it many, many times, and I would encourage you to, to take it in. It's John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Jesus continues, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. The abiding principle, Peter's alluding to that with this long for. It's this idea of drink in the life of Christ. He's the vine, we're the branch, we're attached. And as we drink in his truth, his word, then that's going to start to produce natural things. This isn't a gospel of sin management. This is a gospel of saying yes to Jesus and letting his life flow through us. You're going to abide in somebody's words. You're either going to abide in the words of the world or you're going to abide in the words of Jesus. And as you abide in his words, those things like slander and malice and all that, they're going to, they're going to fall off. They're fruit that will die on the vine and new fruit will take place. John 15, 5, it's like the northern star for your salvation. It's abide in Christ, and that's what Peter is directing us to. He's going to change his metaphors now. We're going to move into verse 4. We've been talking about nourishment. We've been talking about how you grow. Now Peter's going to talk about how we build. You see, while we're on this road trip, there's road work to do. There's things that we're going to be participating in with Jesus and that's where Peter's going to go next, to a construction metaphor. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in, whose sight, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones... It's an oxymoron. Stones aren't living. But if you'll remember back in our series with David, we remember that David said to God, I want to build you a house. And God responded basically through the prophet, no, I'm the house builder. I'm the one that builds. David wanted to build God a temple. And God does eventually equip him and guide him and his son Solomon to put together a temple but in all of that, we saw that God was saying there's, there's one coming, a future son of David, that's going to build a very different kind of temple. Well, here we have some of the construction materials, living stones. That's you and I. He's talking about us. These living stones for a different type of temple. You notice what else there besides being part of the temple? Notice also that we are we're called to be like priests. We're called to a priesthood, a holy priesthood. This verse and verse 9 are one of the strongest verses that point to the priesthood of the believer. Now think about that. I think about it with myself. Little old me and little old you, a priest to the Most High God. Priest would intercede for God between God and men and from men to God. Priest would offer sacrifices. A priest had access to God that the rest of the world didn't come. And when we come to faith in Christ, we're invited into that special relationship to have access to God. That's amazing. And you know who else fills these categories? Jesus fills these categories. When we study the life of Jesus and how he's describing himself, we see him describe his body as a temple. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And they thought he was talking about the one Herod had been remodeling. 
And John tells us, no, he's talking about his body. You know what else? Jesus is called the high priest, and he's a high priest that makes a very different kind of sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews has much to say about this, and I want us to take just a moment. In Hebrews 9, we read this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, this is a reference to the tabernacle, that the temple then took place of that function. We read, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here's what Jesus did. He came to earth. He was the temple, the spirit indwelling him. He was the high priest. He makes the ultimate sacrifice, and blood being shed ends with his blood being shed. But we're called here in Peter to work in that function, to, to be like Jesus. Is that, is that a little overwhelming? <laughs> it's a little overwhelming to me. And what's this business about sacrifices? What are these sacrifices that we, not as the high priest, but as priests serving under Jesus, what kind of sacrifices are we to make? When Hebrews 13, we read this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. When we confess Jesus Christ as King, as Savior of the world, that's a sacrifice of praise. When we come in here and we sing worship to him, we're sacrificing, we're, we're giving that praise to him. The writer of Hebrews continues, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we do good, when we serve others, that's a pleasing sacrifice to God. Now, there's a number of other places that we can go. We won't take the time to go to all of them. We could go to Romans 12, where Paul tells us our very bodies are a living sacrifice to God. And, and think about that. Every time you get up out of bed and you walk out in the world, your, your body, your life is a sacrifice. This is weighty. This is heavy. You know, back in the first three verses, I was a little daunted by the, okay, put off the deceit, the malice, the envy, the slander. That, that's pretty tough. But now we're called, we're called to, be like, to be like Jesus. That's, that's pretty heavy. But there's given us an answer. How? The answer to how? Look at verse 4. This is the second place I would encourage you to mark your Bible if you do that. As you... And mark these words, come to him. Come to him. The grammar there makes, gives the idea of a continual coming. One scholar puts it this way. We continually come into the personal element. Do you notice? It's to him, not to a doctrine, not to a building, but to a person. This, this one man continues. He says, the gospel is primarily a person, a person to welcome and to trust and emulate. But you cannot emulate him unless you come to him first. This building project, this special kind of temple with these special kind of sacrifices, they're only possible if we come to him. There's two answers this morning to how we accomplish this, how our conduct is transformed. The first one is we stir up those desires in the new creation. And the second is we come to him and we continue to come to him. Those, those are the key. We can only build if we build with him. It makes me think of Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can build because we build with him. We can put off those other things because of what he has put in. That's the key. This is not a gospel of sin management. This is a gospel of a relationship. And as we draw near to him, the ability for these things to take place in our life is there. And it's access through faith. Think about the metaphor of a building. Those stones resting on the foundation, that solid, solid foundation that is Christ himself, and they sit there, and then another stone is placed. There's this idea of community knit closely together, depending on one another. It's solid, it's strong, and it all is about faith, dependence upon that which is next. Faith is the way that we access this. Faith is the key to experiencing the blessing this spiritual house, and that's where Peter's going to go next, the blessing that takes place. I want you to look at verse 6 with me. This is some incentive. This is some motive. In verse 6, we read, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious. And notice, here it is, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The will not be put to shame is a literary device where it it, uh, it states the negative to affirm the positive. You're never going to leave grandma's house hungry. Okay, That's kind of what he's saying there. This means there's going to be honor. When you believe, when you believe in him, when you rest upon him, honor will come to you. Look at the first part of verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. He restates it. The apostle Paul told his protege, his this disciple Timothy, he said, when we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Now think about that. Not only do we get to be priests, not only do we get to have the Holy Spirit indwell us, we're going to one day reign with him. There's great honor in this, and it's available for those who believe. Now he's going to flip the coin, and he's going to talk about those who don't believe. Look at as verse 7 continues. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling. Stone of stumbling. They stumble because they disobey the word and as they, and as, as they were destined to. Now, those last few words are what I want to I draw your attention to those. What were they destined to? They weren't destined to disobey. They were destined to stumble. Stumbling was the consequence that God prescribed for those who won't believe. And you think, well, well why is that? Well, it's a blessing. Think about it. God has offered light to the world. And if you reject the light, you walk into the darkness. What are you going to do in the darkness? You're going to stumble. And God has prescribed that stumbling. It's a blessing. Every judgment, every discipline that we ever see throughout Scripture, it's designed with one thing in, in mind, to draw people back. There's a great passage in the book of Ezekiel that I want to share with you in just a second. But what I want you to start to think about is when you read the Bible, God in the Old Testament sometimes gets a bad rap. There's all this judgment, all of this, but it's over hundreds and hundreds of years, warning after warning, prophet after prophet, and with each one, God's desire is to draw people back to him. And in Ezekiel, we see this very clearly when God says this to the prophet. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord... I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
Now, wait a minute. I'm not that good. Sometimes I take a little pleasure in the death of the wicked. When I hear, think about wicked, the wicked are, that's really, really bad. That's a bad word. The God of the universe is saying, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He continues. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Look at the vocabulary. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? With every discipline, with every warning, with every stumbling that's prescribed, God is attempting to draw people back to himself. God's love for his creation is so intense. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're like me, maybe you were drugged here this morning, like I was drugged to church a few times in my, my early life. Maybe, maybe church is a tough place for you. Maybe Christians haven't modeled life for you really well. Maybe you've even been hurt. What I would say to you is please don't judge Jesus because some of his ambassadors dropped the ball. The God of the universe it longs to have a reconciled, reconciled relationship with you. And he sent his son Jesus for that very purpose. In John chapter 3, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can place your faith in him right now where you sit. And if you do, I would invite you to let me know or somebody with a lanyard. We would love to celebrate with you. We would love to pray with you. And we will do our best to be good ambassadors but we'll fail at times, but we would love to join you in that journey. And here's what I want you to know about once you join that journey. There's some good things for you, and Peter's going to go there. Look with me now at verse 9. But you, this is all those who are born again, whether that was a second ago or 50 years ago, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's two things that every human being craves. Every human being craves significance and security. And what Peter has just told us is both are found in Jesus Christ. Both are found in Christ. In Christ, you have significance. In Christ, you have security. It's, a, it's, it's the place to be. It's, it's the place where you're received. It's the place where you're loved as you are. Peter says, that's what, waits, that's what awaits you. Now, if you're familiar with the Scripture, you may recognize that these are words often used of Israel. And what I'd like to say to you is, I want you to know that this is similar language, but it doesn't mean that, that the church has replaced Israel. God will fulfill all of his promises to Abraham and David in the millennial kingdom. That is yet to come. But right now, these things are for us. And you see, every time God calls his people, just like Nolan shared last week, Israel was called to be a nation of priests, and so you and I are called to be a nation of priests. We're called to be a people who communicate God's word. We're these ambassadors for, for him to the world. That's always been his plan. He always wants us to bless the world, and that's where we're going to go next. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now let's stop at verse 11. We're in the section that I've labeled for a blessing. And you may have stumbled for a second on that word abstain. It's not a word we like. It's a word for basically saying no to some things that we desire, right? But that word abstain, it's in a certain grammatical voice that it means it's the choice of this of the subject. And so we're talking about a choice here, a choice to say no to something. And every time you love something, every time you fall in love with a certain thing, you're making a choice to say no to some other things. About 30 years ago, I got down on my knee and I asked the beautiful Lynette Kathleen Moore to be my wife. And she said yes. And when she said yes to me, she said no to all the other men. And there's a lot of good men in the world, but she said no to them. And when I said yes to her, I was saying no to all these other, all these other women. They're obviously clamoring after me. No. <laughs> when we say yes to anything, we're saying no to some other things. That's part of love. Love has an exclusive nature. Intimacy flourishes in exclusivity. Let me say that again. Intimacy flourishes in exclusivity. And everything we're talking about this morning, the long for, the drawing near, we're talking about love. We're talking about being in love with Jesus. And as we fall in love with him, these other things fall away. And Peter's not talking about saying no to good things. Look at what he's saying, say no to, saying no to, the passions of the flesh. Your flesh wants to enslave you. Your flesh wants to master you. This is where addictions come from. This is where we get beat down and overrun. This is the way that we become slaves in the world. And Peter's saying, I don't want you to be slaves. I want you to be free. And with each choice we make, we choose love or we choose freedom. John Mark Comer said it this way. We become freer to love or more enslaved to our flesh with each choice. With each choice. Every single day as we wake up and we move into the world and we make choices, we're either going to be more enslaved or freer. And Peter's saying, be free. He said, well, how do you do that? Well, he's already told us. We stir up these desires that are in the Spirit and we draw near to Jesus and we do that every day. That's how we learn to say yes to Jesus and no to the other things in the world. Now look at the last verse with me. Keep your conduct, there's our word, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now that day of visitation can have two different ideas. It can be the day of judgment that's going to come for, for all unbelievers someday, or it could be the day of visitation when the Spirit draws someone, and I think he has both in mind. Our lives can either be a testimony to convict someone where they're standing before God's throne. He said, you had this neighbor who modeled love for you and grace, and you just kept rejecting it and rejecting it. I gave you this example. Or it could be used the way Jesus used it in Luke 19, where he accuses them, you didn't know the day of your visitation. Israel, their Messiah came that they've been looking for for all these millennia. And they, they didn't know the day of their visitation. The day of grace was upon them, and they, they, didn't re, they didn't receive it. Peter's saying our lives, our conduct, is a testimony or a conviction to the world. The way we live our lives 
it matters. That's what he's saying. And he's given us the resources. God has given us the resources to have our conduct and our character changed. Do you remember the question that I began with this morning? What would someone think about Jesus if you were the only one of his followers they had ever met or observed? Not meant to be a guilt trip. Just a reminder that our conduct matters, and it impacts not only unbelievers, but it impacts believers. We've had this metaphor for this series, a road trip. I bet some of you have been on a road trip. We've been using that analogy some. But you know you pack differently when you go to the beach than you do when you go to the mountains, don't you? And Peter has just told us that this, these battles with the, the, the flesh, that it's a war. We're in a war. We're on a road trip through a battlefield. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 5. He said, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing, notice, the things that you want to do, the things that you want to do in the inner man, that new creation. It's a battlefield. So let's ask the question, how did you pack your backpack today? Imagine you're going on the road trip. Are you going to the beach? You're going to the mountains. And I would say, do you recognize that you're going into a battlefield? Because if you're going into a battlefield, you're going to pack differently. If you're going into a battlefield, you want to be careful who your companions are. And Peter has just told us, stir up those longings. Drink in the word. Pack the word with you. And turn and come to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus. He's the companion that you want on this road trip. All of these choices matter. Now, let's be honest with each other. We're going to make some mistakes. We're not going to be perfect ambassadors with each other. So there's one other thing that I'm going to encourage you to put in your backpack, and that's a first aid kit. Every good backpacker, every good military man or woman that, that goes into a battlefield, they're going, to have a, they're going to have a first aid kit to take care of themselves and to take care of others. And here's the label that you'll find on that first aid kit. It's the word grace. G-R-A-C-E, grace. We need grace for ourselves. I'm not the perfect example. I will let you down sometimes. And we need grace for others. Some of you will let me down sometimes. It's going to happen. We're, we're not perfect. We're in process, and we need to be honest about that. When we think about the example that we lead, Jesus told us exactly what he wants people to see when they watch us. Here's what Jesus wants, wants people to see. It's in John 13. He said this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what we're to be known for. We're to be known for our love for one another, and it begins with love for Jesus. It begins by stirring up those desires of the new creation and coming to him. Those two things I had you highlight, that's the answer to how. And when we do those things, people will see us loving one another. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com. Or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.